and you are back here at Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, every Thursday from 9 to 10, talking about dreams, sleep health, consciousness, culture, and all points in between, and even tangentially related. So I'm very happy to have as my guest today, uh, a guest that I've had on before, author and dream worker Robert Moss. Robert, welcome to Dream Talk Radio. Good to be dreaming with you, Anne. Yes, you too. How are you doing? How's your trip so far? Very good. I'm staying at a place with a great big swimming pool and living in the frozen northeast. It's great to be able to swim outside. Oh, very good. So it, I, in your travels, I mean, you travel all the... I think the last time we were in email contact, you were out in Lithuania. Do you have enough... Obviously, you must, but how long do you have to stay at home between travels to sort of get rooted back? Hmm, I don't know the answer to that question because I am in perennial motion, yet funnily enough, I like to be down in my cave in the basement apartment of my house where mm-hmm. I write and go deep. I like that too. So it's an alternation. I spend 50% of my time on the road because <clears throat> the world is hungry for this, Anne. I'm teaching yeah. all over the place. I've been invited now to teach in places ranging from Estonia to Barcelona. <clears throat> and I'm going to these places for a couple of reasons. First of all, people are hungry a way of accessing the dreaming and the dream time that our cultures almost forgot. And secondly, yeah. I learned so much by traveling in different cultures. I find myself dreaming into the languages, the symbology, the traditions mm-hmm. of these peoples. And it's fascinating for me to have the opportunity to perform what I call dream archaeology, right. by which I mean ex- gaining experiential access to ancient traditions uh, in a country and then being able to follow it up with exact scholarship and science. Mm-hmm. So I'm accepting invitations from all over. But of course, I love coming to California. I love <laughs> Sebastopol. I love Copperfields. And we're going to do an incredibly exciting workshop this weekend. It's a new one. It's called Dream Gates, the title of the book that's just out. Yes. The subtitle is A Journey to the Multidimensional Self. And that's what all of this is about. Well, that's not, now maybe you can tell us, number one, how do, what do you uh, see as the multidimensional self? Well, you know, you and I are talking on a phone line in 3D reality, and we're talking with our left brains. Maybe more of us is coming into play because it's an interesting subject and you're an interesting interviewer. But this aspect of ourselves is only part of who we are. I mean, we belong, we are at home, if we'll only remember it, in a multidimensional universe, <clears throat> which science tells us has at least 10 or 11 dimensions, and which dreamers may discover has more. So the whole trick of life, really, from my point of view, is to start to remember more of who we are, where we come from, and what we're doing here. Part of that is beginning to remember that you may have come here on a life assignment, Part of it is remembering that you had a life before you came into this body and you'll have a life after death and you want to know about that firsthand and you want to be prepared for the experiences that will follow death. Mm -hmm. Part of it is learning that your fundamental life teacher is not this or that, it is the self on the highest level that you can reach, who you may regard as the God you can talk to, but I'm happier to call the higher self, Mm -hmm. and that you want to rise and learn to evolve in consciousness beyond the level of the ordinary mind or the ego self to a direct connection with that larger self. Part of it is remembering that you are part of a spiritual family, that you have counterparts and connections across place and time, in the past, in the future, in parallel dimensions, and so on. And these are all things that we want to know about firsthand. We don't want hand-me-down dogmas or or belief systems about Mm -hmm. this. We want to know these things as active explorers. And that's what I help people to do, to go actively into these realms and bring back firsthand information and ground it in the body and use it and live it. 
So that that actually brings up a fascinating question to me, which is, how do we ground that kind of as you what you call multidimensional information into our bodies? How do we bring that back home? Essentially, I guess what I'm asking is, how do we tell whether we're dreaming? Well, those are two interesting questions. They're not exactly the same questions. Not exactly. Them, so let me try and deal with sure. them as best I can. How do you ground it? Well, I mean, we all have our practices of staying grounded. I got up this morning and went swimming right away. That's yeah. one of my ways of staying grounded. I stay grounded by getting in the water, which is my primary mm-hmm. element. So that's one of my ways of staying in my body and giving my body something that it loves and keeping it <clears throat> fitter than it might otherwise be. Another way of grounding it, which might sound strange, is to live by it in the sense of regarding whatever life gives you as a sign, a symbol, a synchronicity, a learning opportunity. I mean, I regard everything that enters my field of perception any day or any night as part of a living symbology of life that I will play with. For example, on the planes yesterday riding to California, I had the new edition of my book Dream Gates, which has this gorgeous cover. And on the first plane, an attractive young woman, an editorial assistant in her late 20s, said, may I look at your book? She grabs it. She opens it in the last pages, which contain an interesting story in which dreams and synchronicity interweave. And she says, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, I want to live like this. (laughs) And that's part of it. You see, living like this means regarding the world, to quote the poet Baudelaire speaking with the poet's clarity, to regard the world as a forest of living symbols that are looking at you. That's the way I operate. Bringing a multidimensional perspective into everyday life means being alert to the play of the deeper order of events all around you all the time without getting crazed by it. I mean, you don't want to get crazed by this and regard everything as a part of some conspiratorial pattern. Yes. I mean, that's, that's Looney Tunes. So that's part of the grounding. How do you know whether you're dreaming or not? Well, Anne, I'm dreaming all the time. For me, <laughs> dreaming is not fundamentally about sleeping. It's fundamentally about waking up. That's, in my lexicon, what dreaming is fundamentally about. Dreaming is about waking up to a deeper logic of life. Uh huh. So I guess the way that I see those two questions linked is that um, I've had the experience going way out into the the outer realms and then coming back and 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 I think I'm back, but then it turns out that I'm I'm actually still dreaming or still journeying. And so there's this way in which how do I tell that I'm dreaming is connected to being grounded in my body because all of those intermediate stages I wasn't quite back. So do you, is there a way that you teach people in your workshops how to become fully grounded once we've well, absolutely. gone Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know how much of my life you know, but I'm somebody who had great difficulty staying in the body and in this world as a yeah. child. I had what today would be called near-death experiences as a child, yeah. and they weren't just images of lights and tunnels and faces. I seemed to live a whole life somewhere else. So in my childhood, I was so extremely out there <clears throat> in such remarkably dramatic experiences that it's been very important to me ever since to find ways to successfully stay grounded and to help other people do that. I'm very good at doing that. I'm very good at helping people travel far and deep and bring it back into the body. But going back to your existential question, we may well be dreaming right now and wake from this dream at the moment of death. I mean, that's the teaching of many traditions. The question is not really are we dreaming or not, but are we aware that we have bodies and want to look after those bodies and Mm -hmm. feed and nourish them and keep them safe? We need to do that. But, you know, if we take the attitude that all of life is a dream, or a dream game even, then we might do better. We might start pushing the edges of possibility a bit instead of endlessly conforming to what other people tell us reality is like and what we're capable of. I'm very interested, and this is part of grounding, you see. It's part of grounding in a creative, forward-moving way. 
I'm very interested in encouraging people to test the limits of possibility in their regular, regular lives, not to jump off rooftops thinking they can fly in the physical body, which they cannot do. That will hurt. But, but to test in other ways whether reality is more malleable than we may have been taught. Mm-hmm. I'm very much in favor of testing the limits of possibility at every turning and not being trapped or dragooned into someone else's definition of what is real. Well, that's very important because there are so many uh, reigning definitions out there that it, that it's easy to be trapped in. You know, the more uh, freedom of the press belongs to them who own the presses. So, uh, the let things me, that we let read. Me tell you another thing about grounding in the body. This is very much part of my book, Dream Gates. It's very mm-hmm. much part of my approach as a teacher. I mean, my approach as a teacher is very much about soul and soul recovery and getting yeah. vital energy and identity back into the body where it belongs. The greatest contribution of primal shamanism to modern healing is the understanding that in the course of a life, we can lose parts of our vital energy or soul through pain, abuse, shame, grief, trauma, addiction, wimping out on our best dreams, wrenching life choices, etc. Getting really grounded is about bringing more of ourselves into the body where it belongs, Mm -hmm. including that terrified five-year-old who went away because of bad stuff in the family, or that beautiful teenager who, who was felt betrayed and abandoned in her first love and went away, or that other younger self who disagreed with the life decision we made and so went away and is not with us. Now, to get those parts of ourselves, those parts of our vital energy and identity into the body and to make them stay around, we have to negotiate. We have to give them things that it's fun for them to do. We have to keep them safe. We have to give the five-year-old a birthday party with the candy that she likes. We have to give the beautiful teen the hope of romance and dancing and beautiful clothes and fun. We have to be fun to be around. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this, for me, is not just about being grounded in the sense of some vague self. It's about being grounded in the sense of bringing many aspects of our family of selves together in a situation where we are fun and lively to be with. Mm -hmm. So we have to do things that entertain spirit, and the spirits I'm talking about are our own spirits, the five-year-old, the teen romantic, the the businessman in his 30s who might think we are hopeless but could be attracted to come back and lend us his skills, etc. That's part of real grounding, and Mm -hmm. it's part of soul recovery and integration in a lifetime. Well, you know, and this ties into your ideas of the afterlife. In the uh, in in your book Dreamgates, you have a whole section on uh, a new map of the afterlife. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, this 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 is a remarkable book, says the author. I mean, I think in some ways this is my most radical, most adventurous uh-huh. book, Dreamgates. The first edition came out twelve years ago, but the time for the book fundamentally is now. Although uh-huh. I must say that for the last twelve years, this book Dreamgates has probably had the most passionate following of all of my books. Is that right? One of its four parts is called A Manual for the Psychopomp. Psychopomp mm-hmm. means guide of souls and is used in this context in relation to guiding the departed, guiding the dead, becoming a frequent flyer between the worlds and knowing the roads of the afterlife. You can't write or talk about these things unless you've been there. I mean, I've been there. I've made many journeys to the other side. I've personally inspected many afterlife locales and transition zones. And, of course, I've studied every major tradition that I possibly could that has a practical teaching, a practice of approaching the afterlife. The old lady on the plane on my second flight yesterday, who was 75 years old, a retiree in Carmel, said, 
have, who's very interested in learning about the afterlife. In fact, yeah. she looked at my book, Dreamgates, and she said, I want to die like this. That's uh-huh. after she'd read a section on designing a home in the afterlife. Uh-huh. She's reading that in my book, the idea that you could design a home in the afterlife. And she said, you know, I spent all these years building myself a beautiful home in Carmel. I realized at 75, I'd really like to be involved in exploring real estate options for where I'm going to live next. I'd like to build, have a hand in building my home in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. You can do these things, but once again, you need to know about them firsthand. She said to me, I guess we can't talk to people who've been there and come back. And I looked at her and I said, but those are the only people who are reliable, who have reliable information on Mm -hmm. the afterlife. Those have gone there and come back. In Tibetan, there's a term for someone who has died and come back. Delok is the Mm -hmm. way it's pronounced. And it means literally one who died and returned. I'm one of those, Anne. I mean, Mm -hmm. I died and returned as a child. And I've gone back there intentionally as a dreamer and as a shamanic healer and practitioner to learn the roads of the afterlife, to assist people on those roads, to guide people to meet their departed in the realities where they are now at home. And this weekend in Sebastopol, I'll be teaching people how to do that, not just talking about it, Mm -hmm. but offering the opportunity to go on a direct personal journey into these realms, get timely and helpful information, bring back knowledge to live and to die by. You're listening to Dream Talk Radio. I am speaking today with Robert Moss, and you can uh, hear Robert Moss in person on Friday at Copperfields Books in Sebastopol at 7 o'clock. Robert is also doing a weekend workshop in Sebastopol, and uh, you can either sign up at the reading or call Stephanie at 707-484-5896 for more information about that. Now, you said something interesting a little earlier, which is that this book was published 12 years ago, but really its time is now. I mean, as somebody who was always perpetually slightly ahead of the curve and frustrated because of that, I wonder if you could speak to that, um, that, that condition. One of, my, one, of, one, of, one of my early books, when I was writing in a different mode, was reviewed by someone who said, Robert Moss's problem in life is he is forever so far ahead of the advancing party that he is forever likely to be scalped by hostile Indians. <laughs> it's very funny, given the fact that the Iroquois people, the, the real people of the Northeast, got me in my dreams later and really helped to change my mind about things. Yeah. Uh, Dreamgates came out in 1998. I've added new material to this edition. There's a new uh, introduction called Becoming a Citizen of the Multiverse. Uh, there are some other changes in the book. But uh, the bulk of the book is still the 1998 edition. However, I think 12 years later, the, the time of this book has really come. I mean, I like to say the time is always now, except when the time is go. I think the time mm-hmm. for this book is go, uh, mm-hmm. or come, depending on how, how you look at it. Yeah. Uh, people are hungry. They're more hungry than they used to be. Our society has opened up even further in the last uh, 12 years. And in the midst of, you know, the wreckage of some hopes and all the challenges that we face, I mean, I think people are even more actively looking for tools and resources to take mm-hmm. them beyond mm-hmm. the ordinary conception of how things work to a deeper understanding of what reality is all about and what possibility life may hold. So I'm very excited about the new birthing of this book. It feels like a a fresh birthing. It's not just a second edition. It feels like like a new birth. Oh, well, that's fabulous. I'm curious, um, I mean... I've heard a lot of people talk about the, 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 this phenomenon of people are hungrier than ever and the time is better now. And I'm wondering, I mean, being myself an incredible skeptic and just sort of uh, continually annoyed by this whole 2012 thing, like, oh, Jesus, do we have to go through another uh, Y2K or something? But I wonder if, if you see that differently and if maybe that's part of your reasoning for, for feeling like there's even yet more opening in the culture now. Well, again, you're 
putting several things together in an interesting <laughs> way that I would sort of like to separate sure, out go and ahead. take one by one. I'm not very interested in the 2012 prophecy. I've never been very interested in apocalyptic predictions. When you look back on the history, we know none of them have ever come true, you know. Oh, I know. It's <laughs> we've annoying. Had, we've, we've had millenarian uh, it's so terrors, annoying. terrors around the year 1000, the year 2000. By the way, the early Christian church was absolutely possessed by this kind yes. of idea. The world was going to end soon. That's and right. there are there are other there are other cults and religions that have had that view, and they've usually ended badly. I mean, Jonestown is one example. Yes. the end times are coming, so you kill everybody. Um, I'm not suggesting that the 2012 believers are part of such a nasty syndrome as that, but I have no interest in millenarian apocalyptic yeah. wretched predictions. Any future we can think about, Anne, is a possible future, whether it is an individual future or a collective future. I'm not going to bend my imagination to supporting some apocalyptic, terrible, Armageddon-like, end-of-the-world scenario. I'm going to bend my imagination, and I know how powerful a tool the imagination is, to thinking we humans are going to find our way through. We are going mm -hmm. to find our way through. We're going to come into balance with this planet. We're going to start cleaning up our acts so that the Earth doesn't want to cast us off her back and, and uh, that we will make our way through. That is, mm -hmm. that is the wager, that is the gamble I'm going to make. I'm going to put my bet, my imaginal bet, on a happier future than all these apocalyptic scenarios. So I'm not haunted by the idea that everything is going to collapse. I will say quite candidly that one thing that does not haunt me but inspires me and mobilizes me are my impressions of a remarkable woman of the distant future, three or four centuries into the future, who's in some way connected with me. Mm. I'm not talking reincarnation necessarily. Mm. She might be a descendant of mine, but we are connected. She's a priestess and a scientist in a possible future society, three or four centuries into the future, in which women have greater power than they have today by far, and a particular order of women who are both priestesses and scientists are trying to rebuild things after men have made a bit more of a botch of it. And I feel an obligation to her. I know that dreaming is central to her and her people. I know that there is a future dreaming society amongst all the possibilities for the planet. I've written about, a bit about this at my, at my, at my website, mossdreams.com. Mm -hmm. You can find some papers from Dreamland, a future society, which show a bit uh, of what a society that in which dream, dream practices, dream healing, dream scouting, dream seership were central would be like. I feel an obligation towards a possible future society where dreaming in the fuller sense of the word that I use is absolutely essential and to a woman of that time. I want to help make it possible. So as yeah. I work and teach and study today, I have a sense of an obligation to the future. But that's a much happier mm -hmm. future than some of the prophecies. Well, I find that tremendously encouraging. <laughs> Any, anything that we can do to... to uh, to combat or just to provide a um, an encouraging counterpart to the whole uh, destruction apocalyptic visions, I think is is money in the bank for us as a species, really. Um, well, when you talk about money in the bank, we, we do have, that's a good phrase, we have to think about where we invest our imagination. Exactly. If, we, uh, if we're all tempted or lured into investing the power of our imagination into negative or horrific scenarios, we make it more likely that those scenarios will be played out. Yes. I, I guess, I, I, I mean, I, I'm prefacing this with, I, I see that I'm sort of veering into the realm of, of philosophy, so bear with me or pardon me or tell me to knock it off and talk more about the book if you, if you like, but what you're saying and the, what I've read in your books uh, touches off this, this major question for me, which is, how do we thread the needle? If we're talking about the future of dreaming being way more 
present in our in our cognition and our, in our ability to uh, find a way as a species to overcome you know environmental destruction and everything else. How do we do that without becoming a theocracy? Do you know what I mean? Like how do, if shamans well, it's, are the it's way it's to a, do it's things? It's a question that collapses when applied to dreamers because dreamers can never be can never be members of a theocracy. I mean, dreaming dreaming as we practice it guarantees people's direct access towards the source and allows no one to stand between them and that source. So dreaming is the antidote to any theocratic tendency as we practice it. I mean, you know my process. I didn't invent the if it were my dream bit. Monty Orman in New York City came up with that. But I don't let anybody tell anyone else what their dreams or their lives mean ever. I absolutely, I'm on them like a hawk on a rabbit. If if I hear anybody trying to tell anybody else what their dreams or their experience means, I'm on them immediately. I don't allow that. Our whole approach as dreamers doesn't allow that. So we have the antidote by supporting the idea that dreamers have direct access to the sacred and the knowledge that matters. We have the antidote to any tendencies of that kind. Mm-hmm. And well, and at the same time, I mean, I hear a lot of talk about well, if if we do these these processes and if we go into our dreams, we we come back with objective truth for ourselves. Maybe it's just for ourselves, but in. Uh, by extension, then we bring that out into the world. So who is to say, I, I, I guess this is just my concern, because, you know, in this country, we came so close last election to a, reinstituting a theocracy, basically, in the country. So I'm very wary of people who say that their connection to spirit gives them authority to dictate what, where, in what direction we as a society go. Well, absolutely, and we are the antidote, Anne. Yeah. We are the antidote. <laughs> We're the antidote to that because we do not allow anyone to come between the individual and their direct access to the sacred. You must know that. You're a dreamer. Uh, you must know that that's how we operate. I mean, actually, my favorite source on dreams before the modern era was a bishop of the church, a very heterodox bishop called Synesius of Cyrene, for whom the word philosophy would mean something different from perhaps what it means to modern minds. It's philosophy, philosophia is the love of wisdom, yes. the love of wisdom and right. practical philosophy uh, and, and an educated man or woman of that period would call herself or himself a philosopher not in the sense of academic philosophy but of, of following and finding the perennial truth and developing a practice of doing that. I write about Synesius a little bit in my book Dream Gates and a bit more in my book The Secret History of Dreaming. Yeah. Anyway, Synesius said, dreams are your personal oracle. Do not let anyone come between you and that source. An early bishop of the church. I repeat, we are the antidote to theocracy and authority in these respects. I spend a vast amount of my time helping people to claim their own power and not give away the definition of their dreams or their lives mm-hmm. to anyone else. So we're the antidote to the tendencies you're talking about. Unfortunately, in human history, a lot of people out of fear of freedom, out of fear of responsibility, out of fear for self-choice, uh, give their power away. There's an essay at my blog. If your the listeners don't know about my blog, they probably want to find oh, it. Oh, yes, by all means. I wrote an essay again the other day about one of the most remarkable books of the 20th century, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor mm-hmm. Frankl was an Auschwitz survivor, a Viennese psychiatrist and doctor who survived Auschwitz and found reasons for living even in one of the darkest collective nightmares of humanity. And he again says in his own way, we have the responsibility 
to take responsibility for everything that goes in our lives, to make meaning out of it, to make meaning out of even the worst suffering, and to do it one by one as individuals for ourselves. Mm -hmm. That, again, is part of the antidote to the tendencies you're talking about. But don't lose sight of the fact, Anne, we the dreamers have the cure for this. Well, may it be so. <laughs> we are talking with Robert Moss, author most recently of a revised edition of Dreamgates, exploring the worlds of soul, imagination, and life beyond death. You can find out more about Robert's work and, and writing at mossdreams.com. And you also have a blog. Is that connected to... You can find the link. It's yeah, mossdreams.blogspot.com, right. but you'll see a link at the top of my right. page at the website. Right. Um, you, you're speaking of this this vision of the uh, you know way in the future the the woman priestess who has the scientist and and uh, priestess at the same time reminds me of uh, and I know that you're familiar with her work but Barbara Tedlock I think does an amazing job of weaving those two strands together a trained shaman and also an impeccable scientist. I like Barbara, and she wrote a very good book called The Woman in the Shaman's Body, yeah. which reminds us that the oldest evidence of shamanism, at least in Europe, are the remains of a woman shaman from about 30,000 years ago, found in a site in what is now the Czech Republic, holding in, buried inside a crypt of mammoth bones, and holding in her hand the skeleton of a red fox. <laughs> mm. These are the oldest physical uh, yes. uh, remains of uh, someone we can call a shaman, and it's interesting that this first shaman we've identified is a woman. And interesting that she should have a red fox. I mean, I have actually come across a, a number of people recently with dreams of, I would, uh, for lack of a better word, fox demon dreams. What Always. did you say? Uh, fox demons. You know, foxes. Why did you say fox demon? Well, because uh, one of my uh, friends who uh, had this sort of a dream traced it to the... Um, I want to say a sort of a Buddhist. He saw some some Japanese prints of, and and the title was the Fox Demon. But so we we worked with that image and fox as guide, sort of a thing. Well, I'm not going to demonize foxes. However, if you have any connections to Asian cultures, Japanese or Chinese culture, uh, not just Buddhist but mm -hmm. other modes of that, you find that the idea that humans could be possessed by fox spirits is prolific. It's yeah. just very rife. I mean, they, there is there is a fear going back to very early stage of, of the psyche, uh, the collective psyche there, there's a fear of the fox spirit as something that tends to take over humans, especially women. This is not my belief system, but it is a yeah. belief system in Asia. Uh, the, fox, the fox is a very ancient and important shamanic animal in Europe, in Africa, and in other continents. Uh, one of the oldest, uh, one of the oldest uh, druid um, remains uh, from from the Lindau Moss in northern England uh, is, 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 is the body of a druid, perhaps a druid prince, Anne Ross called him, naturally mummified by the bog waters, who is wearing nothing except a collar of red fox fur and oh, wow. a bracelet of red fox fur around his arm, mm -hmm. uh, which, which again confirms the idea that the fox was recognized as a shamanic ally. Now, the fox is tricky and cunning. Yeah. If the fox is in the field, watch out. There's a trickster element in play, comparable in some ways to coyote in North America. So when the fox is in the field, things are not necessarily going to run straight. But, yeah. but I'm going to sort of draw a breath before I accept the phrase fox demon, unless we're talking about people who are inside the collective mindset of Asian cultures that do believe in fox demons. I don't believe in fox demons, but there are cultures that do. 
Well, my feeling when people talk about that, the, the, the word and the term demon is that this is something that we are unprepared for. This is a force we're unprepared for. And we need a way to, to externalize it before we can actually work with the power that's coming through in that. So I think there's, there, it's, it's a way that I find that people look at animal guides at, at, at the onset if they are threatening them. Well, we're dancing, uh, I listened to what you said, and, and I was silent, because we're dancing on the cusp of, of the personal, transpersonal quandary yeah. that comes up in these areas. I mean, d- dream experiences, uh, inner experiences of one kind or another, are obviously personal, but they can also be transpersonal. Transpersonal no, not only in the sense that we can dream or have encounters with forces that are out there in the world, but that we can have encounters with what Jung came to call the objective psyche. He mm-hmm. moved on from beyond the talking about the collective unconscious, which everyone quotes talking about the objective psyche. And the objective psyche is a transpersonal field where mind and matter are nearly, never really separate, and personal and transpersonal are constantly interweaving. So if I dream or have an encounter with the red fox on the road or in my dreams or in a conscious dream journey, uh, yes, it might be the red fox might be symbolizing something from my personal psyche and unconscious, but it might also, for example, be a link to my ancestors. When I have an important encounter with the red fox and follow it, I find I'm taken back to scenes of life in the British Isles about 1,500 years mm-hmm. ago. I'm taken back very vividly in a primary way. I'm taken back into the life of a man who lived in those times mm-hmm. uh, and knew that world and a man to whom I feel connected. So, yeah. you know, again, it's interesting. We, we, we move beyond these sort of either-or propositions because when we enter the field of dreams as deeply as you and I are talking about, uh, the divide between personal and transpersonal, mind and matter, subjective and objective, is no longer a clear boundary. It's That's a right. boundary. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you, you were talking a lot about, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking of the chapter in here about uh, Wings of the Shaman and ways that we can, uh, primarily with with winged or bird guardian animals, actually use that, uh, whether it's personal, transpersonal energy, to move through one of, one of the, into a dream, into another dimension. And uh, I, that just resonates with so many different traditions. It makes me think of, I, I uh, used to work at an Indonesian import store, and at the time, this was a few years after the great uh, war in Timor, and everybody from East Timor was just, you know, having to, to clear out of their villages and move, uh, move west. And so what you had were uh, people, entire villages moving out of that area, and they would take all of their stone-carved ancestor guardians and everything else with them. They eventually ended up in Java sometime in the 90s, and they had these stone things that they needed to, they needed to, to sell, you know, to, to be able to survive here in this new place. And so long story short, all of these Anadeos, these ancestor uh, statues and everything else, ended up in this warehouse, which, and, and the uh, gentleman I was working for, pretty much bought the entire stock of them, brought them back to Santa Rosa. Many of them are still there. Amazing carvings uh, from these little villages. And one carving in particular caught my attention. And it was it was very unused, unlike the others. It was They had a round base. It was in two parts. A round base with underneath the round base, there was sort of a square hole like you would put a four by four into. And then on top of the round base is the carving of a bird with its head in its wing 
And I kept asking the owner of the store, what does that mean? What is that? I couldn't find that symbol, that bird symbol in any of the books of uh, Indonesian architecture or symbology. And finally, he told me, well, this was the amulet at the top of the shaman's hut in this little village, wherever, whatever village I was, there was the center post and the little, the two part things sat right on top of it. And I thought, well, that, uh, that to me has been the most physical manifestation of what you're talking about in terms of into the, you know, the wings of the shaman that I've ever actually seen. It really, it was breathtaking. Mm. Very vivid. A couple of comments. I want to come back to East Timor in just a second. Uh, in the Orkneys a long time ago, Early shamans were buried with the bones of sea eagles. Mm. The sea eagle was the bird of the, the shaman of the Orkneys in the north of Scotland. And human skeletons and sea eagle remains are found together intimately, you know, entwined yeah. sometimes in the burial sites. Uh, the sea eagle was the bird that guided me in childhood. You find native to the northern shores of Scotland and to the northeast coast of my native Australia. And for the shamans of the Torres Island, of the Torres Straits, the islands between Australia and, and New Guinea, the, the Zogo Lay, the shaman, the man of knowledge of that area, his, his guide is the sea eagle. So mm-hmm. this is a very wide tradition, of course. We discover in dreams that all of us have the power of flight. East Timor, for a minute. You know, I don't know a lot about East Timor, but my, my father-in-law, who died unfortunately young, who my first father-in-law, who was a, a lecturer in history at the Australian National University, where I taught too, Give him a good pal of mine in my dreams after his death, and he'd turn up in dreams, sometimes with a pile of newspapers, and we'd sit down in the kitchen for beer in the dreams in the way that we used to. Yes. And he'd show me things in the newspapers in my dreams that hadn't happened. I remember, I wrote about this in a book of mine called Dreaming True. Mm-hmm. He showed me news reports about East Timor some months before some terrible atrocities were committed uh-huh. that were later attributed to Indonesian military intelligence. Yeah. He's showing me the news, and I'm trying to understand it. And uh, so it was an example of, of course, I used to be a journalist and could have done something with this kind of information once upon a time. I'd long since ceased to be that. It's one of those examples that's coming to my mind because you mentioned East Timor. Of a couple of functions of dreaming I want to mention briefly. First of all, we encounter the departed in our dreams all the time. It's not supernatural. It's not weird. It's just so. And as you clarify your understanding of what's going on, it can be a rich source of information. One of the things that we can learn from the departed in our dreams is things that haven't happened yet because the departed aren't confined to time and space. They can be sources of information on the future. And very important teaching or learning situations in my life have been my contacts over the years with favorite teachers of mine from my early university days in my Australia with Jeffrey and with my favorite professor, Manning Clark, who have appeared in dreams showing me different things. Jeffrey used to show me the future. He was a great specialist on Southeast Asia. He would have been very interested in what Indonesia was doing in East Timor. Mm -hmm. Manning was uh, a historian on a larger scope, and when Manning turns up, it's to show me about history across lifetimes and across different periods, about parallel lives running concurrently in different times and places. So again, these are, I mean, these are stories from my trail, but these are also things that in the workshop on the weekend we'll be exploring experientially, and of mm-hmm. course I'll be talking about it more at Copperfield's Books on Friday, as yes. you kindly mentioned. Ah, wonderful. Uh, we have been talking with Robert Moss today on Dream Talk Radio. Robert is a dream worker, an, a prolific author, and a great storyteller. If you want to check out uh, more of his book, Dreamgates, which has just been released in a new edition, uh, Head on over to Copperfields in Sebastopol on Friday at 7, and you can hear him read from the book and, and tell stories and sign books. And you can always learn more about Robert's uh, work I- at mossdreams.com. Robert, any parting thoughts for the morning? 
Well, it's, uh, I think I'll just give you my dreamer's wish and everybody listening. May your best dreams come true and may you remember them. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Okay. That wraps up another Dream Talk Radio podcast. I'm Anne Hill, and you can find my past shows at dreamtalkradio.net and on iTunes. Be sure and join the Dream Talk Radio Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at Anne Hill to get announcements about future shows. Thanks for listening. Future shows. Thanks for listening.